Club.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And here today on MCU.html, we're going to mispronounce a lot of shit. Today is episode four, Thor. Woo! So I need to be very honest off the bat. I am horribly biased toward the Thor franchise. I grew up with it. I'm a big fan. And today we're going to be starting with the first Thor film, Thor number one, just Thor. Yeah, no subtitle. No fancy subtitle. The Marvel Universe got so used to its fancy subtitles so quickly, we never even realized that Iron Man is one of the only films to just have one, two, and three. Yeah. I also think it's important to note that while in America we call it Avengers, overseas it was called Marvel's Avengers Assemble. Mm-hmm. It did get that little kind of subtitle bit, and uh, I believe Captain America is actually called Captain America the First Avenger. Yes, properly. So there is a whole thing about subtitles starting to happen, but this is the last film pre-subtitling, so that's got to affect the posters or something. Yeah, I mean, it counts for something. It reflects how they weren't really sure what this franchise was going to be yet at the time. We thought Thor 2 was going to be Thor 2, and when it was just Thor the Dark World, after Iron Man 3, we were like, what? And one of the more interesting things about the transition to subtitling is that that often indicates what's in the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Admittedly, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is just Volume 2. That kind of plays into their playlist aspect, but it doesn't really do a whole lot to subtitle. I see what you're saying. I do think that Captain America was only given the subtitle of the first Avenger to get people hyped for the Avengers, but it, it does still tell you what is going to happen in the film in a lot of ways. I definitely get what you mean, especially from the trailer that they included before Thor. When we put in the Blu-ray, it automatically started playing this trailer for Captain America. And to be honest, I found the trailer a little bit misleading to the tone of the film. Mm, Yeah. But it shows Howard Stark helping create the first super soldier and helping transform mild-mannered Steve Rogers into Captain America, the unstoppable muscle machine. The letters that come on screen uh, appear with this metal clanking sound that's evocative of Iron Man, and there's this heavy rock music it's cut a lot funnier than the movie is not that the movie isn't funny but it's not the 1940s war era film that we actually got it's not disingenuous to to the marvel cinematic universe as a whole because there's emphasis on the super soldier program when we see cap get injected with the serum it's very reminiscent of shots of ed norton turning into the hulk it's very much a trailer for the marvel cinematic universe more than captain america as a film but in that regard i think it was i thought it was a horrible trailer i very much felt that that was not captain america that was not the captain america movie They cut it in this way that made every scene feel misleading and misrepresentative, but I feel like that's something we should say for the Captain America portion. Yeah, I can't tell you you're wrong. I definitely can't. At this point when we saw this in theaters, Captain America was only two months away from coming out, so we were already psyched up for Captain America to come out after Thor when we were sitting down to Thor in theaters. 
and then sit down to Thor again we did. So, Kevo, do you want to tell me a little bit about that backstage magic that made Thor come together? Well, originally, back in the 90s, Sam Raimi of the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man trilogy had an idea for Thor and even pitched a concept uh, with Stan Lee to 20th Century Fox, but they didn't get it so it was mostly abandoned until the late 90s interest was picked back up again when x-men was successful and thor was possibly going to be on upn that was weird another concept that was abandoned it was revived in the mid 2000s again when mark protosevich that's you know that could be right who knows uh was hired to write a script for it he described his plans as to be like a superhero origin story uh likening it to a story of an old testament god who becomes a new testament god sure at that time matthew vaughn was attached to direct uh but he eventually left the project guillermo guillermo del toro did i do that right yep uh, he was in talks to direct uh, and envisioned a really dingy Valhalla with Vikings in the mud and stuff and wanted to incorporate a lot of Norse mythology. So uh, he turned that down to direct The Hobbit, thank God. And then Kenneth Branagh was attached. But unfortunately, that really pushed back where Thor was originally supposed to go. It was supposed to go directly on the heels of Iron Man 2. But as we all know, was pushed back to May of 2011. Ironically, it got pushed up two weeks because Spider-Man 4 fell through in production. So that's just a little funny anecdote. I'm so sorry. What the hell is a Spider-Man 4? Yeah, there was going to be a Spider-Man 4 through 6 at one point, but it all just sort of fell through. Oh, you know what? As soon as you said Spider-Man 4 through 6, it's like it all came back to me all of a sudden all at once. Yeah, I feel like I remember something about that and something about Black Cat and people said that they thought it was going to be Eliza Dishku or they thought it was going to be someone else. There was the potential for Bruce Campbell to be Mysterio, John Malkovich to be Vulture, and Anne Hathaway to be Felicia Hardy, which I... That was back in 2007, though, so that was before she was Catwoman. So she does eventually play a black cat, though. Ha ha! Ha ha! Okay, but enough about spider movies that never got made. Let's talk about some Thor. Mark Pro. Tosevich still got story credit for Thor, as did J. Michael Straczynski, but the script itself was credited to three names, a pair and a solo name. The pair was Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stentz, who haven't really written a ton. They also wrote Agent Cody Banks and X-Men First Class, on which they would work with Matthew Vaughn, the director mentioned earlier. Zach Stentz also wrote the script for Top Gun Maverick coming out next year. Uh, all right. Interesting that you say that J. Michael Straczynski worked on this film because J. Michael Straczynski created and worked on a lot of different TV shows and he had an extensive run on Thor. He was the guy who brought Thor back after Thor had temporarily been Ragnarok'd out of canon by an event called Avengers Disassembled. J. Michael Straczynski's run on Thor is really well received. Pieces of it can be seen here in ways, I guess, but he did manage to create a very different story from his comic book run, so that's nice to see. Yeah, it's really nice to see, hear, and read about how 
comic writers have been involved in the creation and writing and direction of these films. It's really nice to know that these stories are being adapted with that translation being kept in mind, making sure that you're staying true to these characters. Like, they chose not to include the Donald Blake aspect as a host for Thor for this film, but they still paid nods to it in a lot of ways that we'll uh, discuss later on. I do think it's important to point out to people that Thor is one of the characters that has the largest deviation from the original source material in the MCU. While other characters will be, in many ways, transformed top to bottom, Thor usually is only able to exist on Earth for long periods of time by being combined with a human host that he shares the body with, alternating between godlike Thor and a regular Joe. So it's kind of like Glory from season 5 of Buffy. Yes. Good to know. Okay, so after those two, the script also passed through the hands of a man called Don Payne, but he also worked on Thor the Dark World, so we can talk more about him then. What I'd really like to talk about instead is this weird trifecta of director, composer, and cinematographer. First of all, I knew this composer before we got into the film as the guy who did the music for the fourth Harry Potter movie, did not particularly like his work there. He is a frequent collaborator with Kenneth Branagh, did all of his Shakespeare's. He's also worked with Alfonso Suaron. Alfonso Suaron? Sure, I like it. Sure, several times. Hilariously, did the score for Bridget Jones's Diary, much like Craig Armstrong did the score for Bridget Jones's Baby. So wait, are you saying that musically the Marvel Cinematic Universe has the most in common as a franchise with the Bridget Jones franchise? Kind of, so far, yeah. So that makes Bridget Jones the Iron Man of her universe. I like it. I really like it. Uh, What does that make Colin Firth? I've never seen a single Bridget Jones movie, so I'm going to guess it makes him someone in those movies. Fair, Fair enough. So, the weird thing about all of this is the cinematographer for this film, Harris Zambarlukas, sure, outside of doing Mamma Mia, has basically entirely worked with Kenneth Branagh, and six films in specific, including the 2015 Cinderella, also have Patrick Doyle as the person doing the score. So, it's these three guys on these specific films over and over again portraying a specific vision and it's just very strange that they just keep working together i know we've had a lot of people who have worked with this guy on this project and this guy on another one but i don't think so far in my research i have seen such a specific trifecta of director cinematographer and composer working on so many different projects together i think that's one of the things that makes these movies so unique early on there's so much more variation in who worked on them, it seems like a lot of these guys brought in their buddies. John Favreau brought in people he'd worked with or would work with again. And here we have somebody who brought in a team fully prepared. I believe, though, a couple of years ago, we came across a fact that I think is important to mention here. Kenneth Branagh, if I'm not mistaken, was convinced to use Chris Hemsworth as Thor at the suggestion of Joss Whedon, who'd worked with him on Cabin in the Woods, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I definitely remember that, too. And when I looked into it, Cabin in the Woods wrapped up right around the time that they were looking at Thor and Chris Hemsworth was auditioning and trying to get the role. They looked at his brother, Liam, as well, but Kevin Feige passed on him. Wow, that's really interesting. I also thought that one of the more bizarre things about this movie early on was the cast it packed. Not only was it Kenneth Branagh directing, but the thing that got me was they got Anthony Hopkins 
and Rene Russo. Yeah. And I feel like between Kenneth Branagh, Anthony Hopkins, and Rene Russo, and the fact that for some reason Stanley was under the impression that North Gods would speak Shakespearean, I feel like one of the things is this movie kind of feels more serious than the other films. It's kind of hard to be like, oh, The Incredible Hulk, that very serious movie. But for some reason, Thor, you kind of can because of the creative team. There's even more beyond that. It's Stone Skarsgård and Idris Elba and Natalie Portman, who had just uh, done her turn in Black Swan like a year earlier than Thor. Stuart Townsend was originally cast as Fandral, but was booted due to creative differences. But still, that was like a guy who was kind of a name. I think what we're getting around to here is that we could refer to Thor as Mjolnir Do About Nothing. <laughs> Unless there's any more horrible puns I can make, I think we should roll right ahead into Thor. Yeah, sounds good. Right off the top, the movie feels like it starts with an apology. We see two women, both of whom are working in STEM. How incredible is that? And we're not referring to their legs. We Uh. literally mean two women in science. Considering that our complaint up through this film was that there were four named women of consequence in the Marvel Cinematic Universe across three movies, it's as if they heard our complaint now in the past and had this film start with two women who cannot possibly be talking about a romantic thing because they're too busy chasing, what is it, like, cosmic storms? Yeah, uh, spatial anomalies, I think, something like that. Jane's a wormhole scientist in this, as opposed to what type of doctor is she in the comics again? She actually started as a nurse, but when J. Michael Straczynski took over and brought the character back from his Ragnaroking, Jane Foster was now a physician, and that totally works for the character. There's no reason she couldn't have been in the first place other than men wrote these comics. So this is the first Marvel movie to be able to pass the Bechdel test, and that in and of itself is at least a big step in the right direction. Yeah. And it's so interesting that this film opens up on who is the love interest and sort of the main anchor narrative point. I don't know how else to explain Jane Foster, Eric Selvig, and Darcy's point in the film, but they intersect with the very real cosmic threat directly. They're the people that are mapping what seems to be incursions into our world. Yeah, they're our point of reference and our point of translation for what is going on with all this sort of, I, I want to say pseudo-Norse mythos, because it's obviously not exactly the Norse mythos, but, you know, this Odin and this Thor, they are how we view what's going on on this cosmic level. You know, to these gods, it's the Bifrost, but to humans, they're explaining to us scientifically, you know, it's wormholes, it's other dimensions, and, and stuff like that. And it's so interesting that they give Jane Foster her own scenes with her own story at this point. As much as I love Pepper Potts, Pepper Potts rarely has scenes without Tony that don't directly relate to Tony. This is instead Jane's job. Yeah. She's just doing her job. Thor happens to be a gorgeous, gorgeous man who falls from the sky and she strikes him with a truck a couple of times. (laughs) But that's not her intent. She's not trying to find a man in the sky. She's trying to chase scientific anomalies. She's looking for an Einstein's bagel bridge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's such a great start point for her. Betty has, I think, zero scenes Literally zero scenes without one of her two love interests or her father. Yeah, no, actually zero. And the 
only time that we see scenes of her outside of relating to Bruce is walking out of class with her now boyfriend, Phil Dunphy. Yeah, it's so upsetting. And when we get to Iron Man 2 and we're introduced to Black Widow in this intentionally muted form, I know I've made this comment on a number of different things here and there, but the first episode of Sports Night by Aaron Sorkin Mm. has us being told that... Casey is acting out of character. Peter Krause. And they t- I'm Peter Krause. He did a commercial for Parenthood with Lauren Graham. And in it, he says, I'm Peter Krause. And we've never heard the E pronounced so hard in the last name Kraus. So now we make sure that we get it every time just for him. Because that's how he wants his name pronounced, and that matters. But so, back in the 90s, on a show called Sports Night, we are introduced to a brand new show being told that one of the leading characters on the show is acting strangely. And that's just such a bizarre narrative choice to take when you are doing a pilot or a first episode or a first installment to have one of your leads behaving out of character right out the gate. How are we supposed to get to know that character and who they are? And how are we supposed to know what is bizarre behavior for this person who we've never met before? And then the worst part is when he snaps out of it, he snaps out of it with this dramatic moment where he he needs to warm the cockles of his son's heart and he calls his son and wakes him up in the middle of the night and tells him to go turn on the TV. Why? Because you're about to see a man run faster than any man's ever run before. It's so saccharine after having this character be so quote-unquote not himself that he yells at a network executive, which is dangerous in his line of work when he's a sports newscaster. And now all of a sudden, he's just having this, who's the guy from It's a Wonderful Life? That guy, you know, oh, everything's swell now. Wendy Lifo. That's his name? I want to say George something. George Wendy Lifo. I know the name of the rabbit from Harvey is Harvey. Is that, which one is the one about the giant rabbit? Yeah, that's Harvey. Okay, which is, which is the giant invisible rabbit? Wait, are you thinking of Donnie Darko? Okay, okay, I definitely just combined Donnie Darko and Harvey. Okay, I see what I've done. I need a moment, for the love of God, talk about when they hit him with the car or something. Oh, I'm sure the people who made Donnie Darko would absolutely love that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that Black Widow and Iron Man 2 is kind of like Jimmy Stewart running faster than anyone's run from a giant rabbit before. And Tazaki Romanov's got something to say about a world record. (laughs) But the car... You know, it's dangerous to say that you're really amused by a person hitting someone else with their car over and over again. But, you know, I am. It's really funny. I feel like the comedy in this film is played up very well. Thor is them starting to understand the feel of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where... You know, even in the more dramatic films, there's lightness. And even in the lighter films, there's drama. And it's a nice balance, and we're really starting to get that. Speaking of things that we didn't get quite yet, and didn't have a terrific balance, this movie starts four times. Yeah, it 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 really struck me when we were watching it this time. We have this scene of them hitting Thor, and then we immediately pull back to 900... AD and we hear this whole tale about Odin coming to Earth and saving Earth from frost giants and then we pull back and it turns out that it's Odin telling this story to his sons young Thor and Loki and if I can just comment on young Thor and young Loki for a second one of the things that the Disney 
princess line has sought to do for the last several films is be sure to introduce a younger version of the princess to have a secondary line of toys. I can't believe we finally got Prince Thor, Prince Loki, and I'm still waiting on my Bratz dolls versions. Well, we also do have a pipsqueak version of Steve Rogers, if that helps. And we do have kid Spider-Man wearing the Iron Man mask. Yeah, that's a retroactive uh, thing that they did. Absolutely. We get killed Killmonger down the line. And you've got, you know, small Bruce Banner and giant Hulk. Yeah, okay. There's a lot of, you know, young princes and princesses in this uh, Disney Marvel superheroes line. That's really funny. Disney, call me. We can make some big head superheroes anytime you guys want. So then we pull back from Disney princess Thor and Loki again to find that we are on Thor's coronation day. So, like, it's been nonstop shoving us around from time to time. I want to make a point. We start at the scientist's on Earth. We pull back to Odin's glory days. We pull back further to Odin telling it as a story to his kids. Then we pull back further and it's Thor's coronation day. And we still do not yet know how Thor's coronation day has anything to do with the scientists from the beginning of the film. Or how he, like, got hit by their car. Yeah. So it's just one of those things where this movie can't figure out when it's done beginning. And I guess part of that is because... It has so much mythology it needs to introduce so quickly. I do think they do a pretty deft job. The first time I felt any slowdown in the film comes after the coronation ceremony. The coronation ceremony is interrupted when frost giants attack. The frost giants are going through Odin's trophy room in search of some sort of giant magical box that seems to be like the source of the frost giant's power, but they don't seem to really need it. It's just kind of like a big ice cannon. It's the morphing cube of Animorphs. Yeah, it's not... I don't understand why they need it, because they seem to be able to do this without it, but hey, it's a thing. Our royal family descend from the coronation to the trophy room in order to take care of the frost giants, but find that the home security system, the Destroyer, a giant robot that shoots fucking fire lasers from its face, has already done the job for them. Thor, of course, demands revenge. However, Odin says, nah, they dead, it's good. Thor says, you got it, Dad. And goes off to his friends to plan, well, revenge. Well, he doesn't exactly say, you got it, dad, at first. He tries to insist that they get revenge and says now that he's king. And that's where we get the classic, but you're not king. Absolutely. I think what we're even hitting on is that the Frost Giants attacked during Thor's coronation into becoming king. Something Thor has wanted forever. So many of these goddamn movies are about white men and their legacies. Jesus Christ. And making things up to their dads. Here, however, Thor isn't looking to make anything up to Odin. Thor is, in fact, pretty fucking pissed that Odin doesn't want to make this up to him. This was his moment to become king. Theoretically, at this point, the canon isn't clear on this, but if we're going to borrow Marvel Comics canon to kind of fill in some gaps that aren't clear here... Of course. Odin's dad, Bor, has not been king in such an unimaginably long time that just about nobody left remembers the days of Bor. Not to be confused with the years of yore or the time of yesteryear. My favorite time period. And Thor's revenge plan is pretty well-timed, because while we've gotten to know Odin and had passing glances at the other members of the royal family, like Loki and Frigga, now we get to learn all about his buddies, the Asgard gang. <laughs> we get to learn about the Warriors Three, Fandral, Hogan, and Volstagg, as well as the Lady Sif, 
Lady Sif is a tremendous character and a further piece of evidence that they were pushing to have stronger female characters in this film. They very easily could have gone with Balder the Brave, whose absence is incredibly notable, as he is pretty much Thor's second-in-command kind of right-hand man, Buddy. The role that Sif seems to play here, no complaints. I much appreciate the elevated Sif role, as well as the role in comics it has led to for her thanks to her involvement in the film at one point she even led a thor spin-off title called journey into mystery for several issues it was very exciting it was unfortunately canceled a little too fast but it was a great book yeah they're clearly more and more as the film goes on you see where they're trying to up the diversity it's asgard it's land of the norse gods and yet everyone is not white we have heimdall played by idris elba and heimdall is a great way to segue back to the point where i feel the film begins to slow down the war Warriors all gather together, along with Loki, who is very uncertain and very uncomfortable with this idea, and they approach Heimdall to open the Bifrost so that they can make their way to Jotunheim to confront Laufey and, I guess, start a war for messing up Thor's party. Yeah, basically. They head on over to Jotunheim. They confront Laufey. Things do not go so well, rather quickly. Odin comes in, kind of, it's just, Anthony Hopkins is sort of out of his mind in this movie at times. He's making these crazy noises, and this performance is really something else. I don't know that it's bad. I certainly don't know that I'm saying that Kenneth Branagh directing Anthony Hopkins playing the God of Gods is a bad performance, but he makes some very interesting choices. Yes, exactly. Not bad choices, but interesting. This does set up a weird element in the film, though. Odin departs, taking everyone with him, saying that if Laufey will not let this go and let this be the actions of a child, he even shames his son. He flat out says that these were the actions of a boy, other king, and other king, you must dismiss them as such. They were the actions of a boy and should not be held against a kingdom. And Laufey's like, nah, man, you were about to make him king. I'm not saying my people were better, but that's a king right there. And this is an act of war. And Odin's like, fine, then we'll have a war. And kind of parties on home. Not before Loki discovers he's a frost giant. The whole thing kind of times a little funny. We're going to run into a lot more of that Marvel Cinematic Universe. Everything's partying right on top of itself timeline issue that just makes some of this so tough. And it's such an interesting choice. I was watching this film thinking about the ways in which it would be more decompressed if it had been produced in the 90s. But all of the events of Thor happen in less than a week, I think. It's a lot. It's a lot of things to all happen at once. And maybe the most important of these events is the hiss. You know, I always remember it as a hiss, but it was really more of like a snarl. It's like an <clears throat> So... To explain a little bit, there's a moment in which Loki goes to ask Odin to be a little more lenient on Thor as Odin is about to banish Thor back to Earth. We have discovered after seeing Tom Hiddleston at an Avengers panel at New York Comic Con, the rebuking noise that Anthony Hopkins utters to Loki's plea for leniency was improv and not in the script and basically sent Tom Hiddleston crawling back a foot because Anthony Hopkins snarled at him. Yeah, that reaction that you see on Tom Hiddleston's face as Loki is genuine Tom Hiddleston reacting to Anthony Hopkins growling. And I would too. I get it. He has said that it was an incredible thing to be opposite Anthony Hopkins playing Odin. And to talk a little bit more about that scene, it's the biggest turning point so far in the film. Odin and Thor kind of get into it. 
Odin says, you know, man, that was pretty dumb. You shouldn't have done that. And Thor says, nah, Dad, the old ways don't work anymore. And Odin's like, eh, you're a kid. Shut up. Yeah, they do. And Thor says, then you are an old man and a fool. It's a really, really half funny, half amazing delivery from Chris Hemsworth because he really does deliver that emotion perfectly. He's supposed to come across as a bratty, angry, trust fund baby, basically. And the way Odin depowers him, he just begins ripping the armor off of Thor. We have no reason to believe the armor is magical. This is a symbolic gesture for all intents and purposes. He is stripping his son of his rank before stripping him of his might. And this is when he is finally pitched back to Earth to be hit by a car. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. Now Thor's on Earth, and the first thing he starts screaming for is, Father! Hammer! Heimdall! And so, of course, they tase him. Like you do. And this is where the human stuff gets kind of tropey. They sort of run through every superpowered being trapped on Earth storyline they can very quickly. They bring him to the hospital. He's screaming how he's a god, and they have to restrain him. I think at one point they even accuse him maybe of being on drugs. I don't remember. Yeah. And so then he has to break free, and as he's trying to escape... Jane and company hit him with their car again. So it's like a double car smash. At this point, though, there's really not a lot going on with Thor. Elsewhere, the hammer has appeared, and it turns out that that hammer sequence from the end of Iron Man 2 just straight up a scene from Thor. Yeah, John Favreau comments on the audio commentary for Iron Man 2 that it didn't even come from their production whatsoever. That's super disappointing, but... I guess I can understand wanting to create this cross-marketing sort of magical universe. I appreciate the effort. Speaking of which, here's where we get our Stamio with a bystander who's trying to pull up Thor's hammer using his truck. We also get one of the more mundane bits of Asgardian drama at this point. Loki goes to the trophy room to touch the giant frost giant boombox again, and Odin's like, no... And Loki's like, how long, father? How long have I been a parcel tongue? And Odin's kind of like, well, you're well, kind of a frost giant. And Loki's like, you love the other one more. And that's when Odin just kind of has a heart attack and goes down. You know, I got to say, watching this film, it's funny that you bring that up. I don't feel like Odin loves Thor more. I think it is exactly what Loki says, which is, no, a frost giant is not going to sit on the throne of Asgard. I'm so sorry. But he does at most points seem to like Loki a lot more. He's always very disappointed in Thor and how brash he is. And he does give a pretty decent explanation for why he took Loki. At different points in the comics, there's maybe been different motivations behind Odin's decision to take the child. Ultimately, however, in this film, they say it's because Odin was hoping that one day it could bring peace to their realms. I appreciate the attempt. I like the idea. I do think it's maybe executed a little oddly. I don't know that I get a real strong sense of Odin and his motivations, and I don't think that's on Anthony Hopkins. I think that's on there's only so much room in a script for people not called Thor in a movie called Thor. 
And Odin is meant to be an ambiguous father figure type. You know, you can't really be certain 100% of his motives. But I think there's a lot of affection there. And when he says he loves Loki, I believe him. I think even in his heart, Loki believes him. Tom Hiddleston does a great performance in this film, for sure, as a conflicted villain. Yeah, I think he does a great job. And I do believe that there is a lot of affection there. Once we get back to Thor and things being interesting for the Thor crew... They are at a diner, and Thor is behaving the way we would expect to have seen Thor behave earlier in the Asgard scenes. And that's fun. We get that kind of humor that we see Thor will ultimately be known for. We see traces of it here when he slams the jar down. Another! And smashes the drink. It's just very funny. It's It's got that lightness that we need from Thor to balance out the overdrama of the Shakespeare. And they hear that there's a satellite. And everybody's crowded around the satellite. They immediately assume it's the hammer. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I mean, it is what it is. There can only be so many coincidental anomalies going on, especially if you consider the fact that this is supposed to be happening the same week as Iron Man 2. There's only so many coincidences that can't be related to this one together. And we get another great Thor humor moment that a lot of people love when he tries to ride a dog. So first, just Thor is going to go after the hammer. Then S.H.I.E.L.D. comes, takes all of Jane's stuff, and then Jane is going to help Thor go after the hammer. And then Jane and Thor go after the hammer and ultimately need help, and they call for Eric. Yeah, that's about it. So in the course of Thor trying to reclaim his hammer from the newly erected S.H.I.E.L.D. tent that they have it trapped in, Thor has to go through a number of S.H.I.E.L.D. operatives. What's really interesting is one of the operatives pitted against him is Hawkeye. Hawkeye is from an above-ground vantage point looking down, constantly saying he's got the shot but being told not to take it. It was really interesting to watch it and consider something. I feel like Hawkeye could lift right out of that scene and you'd never know it and he was only put there to help Avengers. Oh yeah, it could have been any sharpshooter, literally. In fact, I actually believe most of the Hawkeye dialogue comes right out of the film. You could truly cut the Hawkeye sequences out, and it would not affect the Thor fight in any way, as at no point do Hawkeye and Thor interact. They throw in a few nice fluffy bits, you know, him saying that he's starting to root for this guy so that we like this sharpshooter, but that's about it. Hawkeye has the, I guess, kill hit on Thor lined up as Thor stands in front of the hammer. And Coulson says, no, don't take it. I want to see this. Thor looks so cocky. He looks so sure of himself. He's convinced that this whole thing is done. His hammer's right there and he's going to go for it. And he pulls on the hammer and nothing happens. At this point, Thor goes down and falls into the custody of S.H.I.E.L.D. And the movie takes an interesting turn As we cut back to Asgard to find Loki is now king of Asgard, somehow bypassing Frigga, which, I don't know, I have feels on it, but whatever, fine, Loki's the king, whatever. It plays out very conveniently and very quickly, especially if we're meant to believe that Loki only just became a villain. I agree. It all seems very coincidentally timed. I... Take it to understand that Thor was being coronated because they knew an Odin sleep was coming. So I don't think it's too coincidental that all of this rage and drama induced a very deep Odin sleep on him. But yeah, it does all just sort of happen to work out in Loki's favor. Especially because we're not meant to believe that Loki was evil before this. He's a trickster god, though, so inherently untrustworthy. Yeah, I guess, I mean, in my head, it's just like, 
in my head, I'm like, nah, he's Loki. He he was a good guy until yesterday. He can't just suddenly be a bad guy today. But if it's programmed into his like the fabric of the character is is some modern interpretation of a trickster, someone who's going to flip at any moment, then that's just got to be part of the character. We get more on his motives and his plan later, but even then, the best you can say is he's hoping everything will work out because he's so clever. But not clever enough to not accidentally give Thor all of the emotional motivation he needed, though not directly. Once Thor is in S.H.I.E.L.D. custody, Loki appears to him and is like, Oh, brother, your antics led to Dad dying of sadness. I love that you played it up so dramatic and I just interpret it as... Loki shows up and goes, Dad's dead. And Thor's like, what? Can I come home? And Loki's all like, how would it look if my first edict was to let my brother go to his father's funeral? It would make me look weak. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a moment where you just kind of got to scoff. You know, it's funny. Watching Thor this time, there were... There are two different lenses that I looked at Thor through on this watch through. One involves Jane, so I'll get to that one later. And the other is, you know, you keep describing the Odin family as so dramatic and Shakespearean, but you could also look at them completely through this mundane lens of Thor is this party boy who just graduated college and was supposed to take over the company, but these shady people that they have an alliance with came and fucked up his party, so he went and fucked up their shit, and dad got mad and took all his money and threw him out, and now Loki is showing up to be like, I gave dad a heart attack, but I obviously is not saying but it's just it's also very Shakespeare and yet also dynasty royal Tenenbaums empire arrested development Shit's Creek it's this rich people have drama it's, it's a really funny lens to view these characters through because it's all there and now I can't stop seeing David as Loki and Alexis as Thor and it's it's burned into my brain forever ew Loki and I really do completely see that. The more I think about the way I've been describing it, I actually do think I have been describing it with so much of this sort of upset, waspy, white family nonsense business going on. And that's even part of what makes this so interesting. This movie is meant to be a comic book movie directed by a guy who's best known for his Shakespeare work. And there's all of this The O.C. One Tree Hill drama thrown in. It really makes for a frothy, fun mix of a movie. I do think that the parts of this movie that slow down, slow us down too far. Mm. We're about to come up on one of those parts that just drags the movie out. But before we get there, there's a moment that's sort of a great tongue-in-cheek instant where Loki, on his way out after having broken his brother's heart by saying you killed dad when really he had knocked his dad unconscious himself, whatever, Loki goes to pick up the hammer and it just won't budge for him either. And there's this moment, and it's just sort of like you can almost see Loki. I can't explain it. There's this thing where, like, Loki's like, well, maybe my dick's just as big. Nope, that's a much bigger condom. And, like, stumbles off into his sadness again to go rule secretly while his father is incapacitated and in some sort of Asgardian iron lung. Yeah, even though Loki seems to be on top of everything right now, it's amusing to see that spark of annoyance in his eye when he is told by the hammer nah bitch you are unworthy it's something that we see in a lot of these tales in this dichotomy setup people love when one person is the have and one person is the wish they had we see it with buffy and faith 
We even see it in a lot of ways with Captain America and Iron Man, because as much as Iron Man is the showman and everybody loves him, he will never be loved with the purity that Captain America is loved with. And that's something that's even true to the character. And we'll get to his relationship with his father and his father's relationship with Captain America and how it's still just trying to make daddy proud by taking care of Cap. And we'll get there. But this is one of those things where we have a storyline about somebody who wants what someone else has, even though... They have everything. Loki is literally one of the most powerful beings in the galaxy. And it's just not enough because Thor is right in his vision and has slightly more. Yeah, that's basically Loki in a nutshell. I was a fool. To think you were ready. Father. Anyway, like we said, this is where the film starts to slow down a little bit. Eric shows up and helps retrieve Thor. There's a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent that we're introduced to in the course of this film, kind of a minor background guy, uh, Sitwell, who is going to become more important. Not really a lot to talk about him here, but it's cool to notice these things as we go. So Eric takes Thor to go drinking at a bar, and they talk about boring man stuff. Then we see Loki meeting with Laufey, which unfortunately is also kind of boring. It's a foregone conclusion at this point that Loki is up to some mischief and that he's helping the Frost Giants for whatever reason. So it's not anything that surprises us. Uh, From there, we move on to Thor with Jane after he brings a drunk Eric home and he talks to her around a campfire and explains the world tree to her. It's a beautiful scene between the two of them. It's very well acted. But again, it's it's pretty slow. But to talk about the dynamic between these characters a little bit. That was the other thing that I, in watching this film, saw it through a different lens this time. I don't know if it's because we've been watching a lot of old mystery science theater movies with Doug McClure romancing cave women, but I never really thought about the fact that Thor is such an such a superior being to Jane. Jane is almost like a primitive woman to him. I mean, he understands that she's a scientist and he respects her and he finds her intelligent and he knows she's more intelligent than most people on Midgard. But there's barely a difference between Darcy and Jane to him. She's still a woman of Earth and he's explaining this very high concept to her and she does get it more than most humans would, but he still knows that this is way, way, way beyond her comprehension because he's a god. I agree. This part of the movie does become a lot about servicing either the fans or the plot. First, we have the Don Blake drop-in during the Eric Thor scenes. We also have the Yadrasil drop-in, which is good for any fan who's been looking for some of the Thor mythos that kind of has to be passed over quickly. Also, seeing Loki and Laufey, it's almost like that the last minute they remembered they introduced this frost giant as guardian war. It was necessary to bring it back together and keep the plot moving. I agree with your point about Asgardians being so much greater than humans as well. This is something that's going to come up a lot when we watch these movies. It's not just that Thor can take a lot of punishment. Thandral can take a lot of punishment. Volstagg, Hogan, Sith. They can all be wailed on. They're not all gods. They're all Asgardians. Asgardians are kind of the next evolution of humans, kind of, sort of, maybe a little bit. They're more powerful. They're stronger. They live longer. They eat more. They sleep but they can be up longer. Like, there's so much to them. They're just another caliber of being. And yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that you put it, especially because the Marvel Cinematic Universe stresses that Asgardian is an alien race, not a mystical being set. When you put it as kind of like an alien and primitive alien culture, there is something really interesting to that, especially because he does come to think of 
Eric and Jane and even Darcy as on par with Asgardians. He elevates them to to his experience. There's something I really like something that you touched on there. I'd never seen it that way and I really like it. He comes to respect them even though he understands that he is their superior, which is not something that he would have done at the beginning of the film. And much like Iron Man, at this point, Thor the film becomes about Thor the character growing, changing, and becoming a better man. Thor is running around on Earth with his science crew when the Asgardian warriors, including Sif and the Warriors 3, realize that something's not quite right here. Loki is not a benevolent king, and it's been days since Odin went into his Odin sleep, and everything already feels amiss. They head down to Earth with the help of Heimdall, who turns a blind eye. Yeah, that's a cute scene. Heimdall is such a great character, and he's such an important figure. It's really great to see Idris Elba play him, because Idris Elba should play everything and everyone at all times. Mm -hmm. So it was just really great to see somebody I love playing a role I love so much. The warriors head to Earth, and they meet up with Thor. And they're all really excited to see each other. It's another one of those scenes where it's funny, but when Volstagg is slamming on the glass window and yells, Found you! It, it, it's, you're almost sort of worried. Like, I think the only reason they didn't have them break through the glass instead of opening the door is it would have been too expensive to reset that over and over again. We do get a little bit of that kind of glass-breaking slapstick when the science crew drop their things when they see the Asgardians. Oh, good point, yeah. Thor and his Asgardian buddies sort of catch up, and they're like, nah, man, your dad's not dead. And Thor's like, Loki! And the Asgardians are like, oh, but also, bad news. And the Destroyer shows up. The Destroyer showing up is the moment that Thor's redemption becomes incredibly clear. The instant the danger begins, Thor tells the warriors to engage the Destroyer while he himself will help get other people out because as a human, he could get his friends injured or worse. That's the kind of foresight that literally was the thing that Odin said was lacking in Thor at the beginning of the film. This is such an incredible transformation for this character, and only in a matter of days, which I allow because he's a god and he's, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred years old, this is a good growing point for him at, I guess, you know, 1500. You know, this is the third major hero that we're being introduced to, and in Iron Man's introduction, we saw him in that cave for three months. We know that Bruce Banner has been on the run for months. You know, back in the 90s, I'm sure we would have gotten some sort of extended sequence of Thor, like getting a day job at the coffee shop and having a really crabby landlady and making connections to all these people in New Mexico. There is a lot of mundanity to early Thor adventures as he was Donald Blake covering the doctor element of things. And J. Michael Straczynski, one of the guys who wrote this film that we mentioned earlier, in his Thor run did some really incredible stuff about a small town being affected by Asgard. So what you're saying, you're surprised you're not seeing, are the kind of themes that this writer has explored before with these characters. It's not even exactly that I'm surprised I'm not seeing it. It's, you know, they could have put it in, and we've seen Thor have those experiences in the comics, from what you tell us, but we've already gotten so many drawn-out origin stories for these heroes. I'm okay with them keeping this sped along nicely at a clip. I also think this fight keeps things speeding along nicely at a clip. The Warriors 3 and Sif engage the Destroyer, who was introduced smartly in the beginning of the film. They keep thinking they might have him, they might have him. But time and time again, the Destroyer, controlled by Loki, is able to rebuild and survive anything these guys can throw at it. Once again, showing the kind of forethought that he was lacking earlier in the film, 
Thor comes to the realization that this is the thing that was designed to protect the Asgard trophy room. There is no chance that the Warriors 3 and Sif are going to be able to take this machine down, especially not with Loki at the helm. Thor convinces his friends to try another tactic, and instead, he approaches the Destroyer in an effort to talk to Loki, knowing full well that it was likely a fool's errand and he was putting his life in danger. But it was more important to try the non-violent approach and to do the self-sacrificial move than it was to keep putting his friends in danger. Ultimately, that is what proves his worthiness. It's it's a really cool scene. I really love the speech that he gives to Loki through the Burninator, expressing his sincere apology to his brother for any slights and wanting to mend fences and wanting to protect these people. It's a really great emotionally vulnerable moment. You know, there's a lot of emotional vulnerability in this film. Uh, men having no problem showing emotions or affection. I forgot to mention earlier, there's a scene where Odin is holding little boy Thor in Loki's hands. You know, there's a lot of really great human, honest emotions from men in this film. And it's a great scene from Chris Hemsworth, who was still very early in his career. From the moment the hammer touches Thor's hand, the movie begins moving faster and faster and faster. In fact, before we even get a look at Thor once again as godly Thor, he's already managed to land multiple hits on the destroyer with his hammer. He and his Asgardians head back to Asgard, leaving the science crew on Earth so that Thor can confront Loki. Yeah, it turns out the entire time Loki's plan was to let the Frost Giants into Asgard and possibly, potentially come near hurting the royal family, but then turning on them and saying, ha ha, I was the good son all along and I'm going to destroy all the Frost Giants. Weird plan, bro. Yeah, and then the next part of his plan involves like the subjugation of Earth, maybe, or or Jotunheim. I'm not exactly sure, but he seems to believe that he has the plan that will put Asgard in some sort of like king of the empire position. Ultimately, no better than Thor at the beginning of this movie. 100%. He's actually not the good child. And I mean, that's the whole point of the damn movie. It's why they put him in green. It's so you know he's jealous. Yeah. The battle is one of those end-of-Marvel movie battles that we've kind of hit over and over again. They start turning into just too much too fast. It all flies a little too quickly. After Loki destroys Laufey, Loki and Thor wind up fighting on the Rainbow Bridge of the Bifrost. Loki just keeps getting rage hit after rage hit in on Thor, who, reasonably speaking, I've had some questions about some of the matchups. For instance, there is no possible way the Warriors 3 and Sith should be able to defeat the Destroyer. It's just not possible. When Loki and Heimdall fight at one point, Loki accusing Heimdall of turning against the throne, which, well, yeah, obviously, because you're on the throne, bro. Heimdall loses near instantly, and the truth is there is no version of that fight that should go point Heimdall and not point Loki. This fight was, in my opinion, one of the most evenly matched and well-executed fights considering the power levels that these characters show throughout the film and in the comics. I felt that Loki was fighting from a place of pure pain, which is somehow enough to convince me that he could get those hits in on Thor. Thor isn't just supposed to be strong for an Asgardian. He is supposed to be unbelievably powerful for an Asgardian. Loki's not an Asgardian, it turns out. Don't get me wrong, he could be, like, Frost a giant royalty. But at the end of the day, Asgardians are meant to be this incredible thing, as we've already discussed. Thor realizing, though, that he will never be able to overcome with strength the intensity of Loki's pain, Thor does the only thing he can do to stop Loki's plan to use the Bifrost as a weapon, and that's he destroys the Bifrost. 
Yeah, I never really think about what a huge sacrifice this is, but we will come to get consequences from those actions in Thor the Dark World, and the fact that what he does here really plunges the Nine Realms into chaos for a little while. And he has no choice. This is not the result of his actions, but rather the result of Loki's actions. I found it really fascinating that there's no point where Jane is like, no, but what if I can never see Thor again? She just doesn't utter those words. I know that we're meant to feel that that's how she feels, but she never says the words, oh no, but I can't see Thor now. However, when Thor destroys the Bifrost, he actually says, Jane, forgive me, not Father, forgive me for destroying your most important piece of real estate. He says, Jane, forgive me. It makes Thor sort of the more emotionally vulnerable one of the two in a lot of interesting ways. But I like that it's not Midgard that is directly threatened by the Bifrost at this moment. It's pointed at Jotunheim, and it's Thor trying to do the right thing even when horrific actions are being pursued against his enemies. And if he had sacrificed the Bifrost for Earth, it would have been a lot less powerful than it does come across in this film. He is sacrificing something for himself, but it's for the good of all nine realms, and even his enemies, and for peace and for life. It's not all about Jane, but we do still get that moment where he is remorseful that he'll never get to see her again. Truly. One of the things I do enjoy about the deus ex machina ending that comes up at the last second is Odin rushes in to save the day with some amount of reasonability behind that. Odin is the all-seeing all-father, the great powerful one-eye. Odin's eye sees all things in existence at all times, even while in Odin's sleep. That's why when Thor proved himself worthy, Odin could see it, which caused the enchantment he placed on the hammer to instruct the hammer, hey, it's time to go be with Thor. The hammer and Thor have a very aware of each other on a conscious, sentient level relationship. That's why he literally calls for it, hammer. He literally calls out for his hammer, and it's why it has a name. Odin's rushing to Thor's side to help save Thor and Loki before they can fall off the destroyed Bifrost works for me because at the end of the day, the movie kind of started with Odin, so it does need to end with Odin. Thor did not become king. We still need the king to come back and restore order. You use the phrase deus ex machina, and... This is one of those scenarios where I'm like, yeah, I mean, deus ex machina means God from the machine. It used to mean when God would just show up and fix everything in a play. That's what Odin actually literally is here. He's the all-father God. It's not unrealistic that that figure would show up at the last second. That's part of its inherentness, I guess. I completely agree with you. I also agree with your use of the word last second because the end of this movie is so fucking fast it's insane i don't think there is five full minutes of film from the time loki instead of being saved by his brother and father chooses to simply let go while dangling off of the bridge and plummet to his quote-unquote death although we've all seen avengers and we know what's going on there the movie just goes quickly to its ending we see asgard the lady sif has a moment with frigga Odin speaks with Thor, and Thor makes his way to Heimdall at the end of the Rainbow Bridge, or what was the end of the Rainbow Bridge, where there no longer sits a Bifrost. I think that there's some really slow shots, but as far as story or action, there isn't really a lot left once the Bifrost is destroyed. There's about two minutes worth of plot, I'd say. But one thing I love about the ending is Thor's only question to Heimdall. He asks Heimdall if Heimdall can see Jane. 
And Heimdall looks out and says, yes, he can see her and she searches for you. And it just ends on Thor smiling that Jane is still looking for him. And that's kind of an interesting moment because Thor at the beginning of the film, the only thing that can be a satisfying ending is a great victory in a great war. And to be king and to rule. And here Thor has lost and lost and lost and lost, and yet he still manages to be happy at the end, because that's how far this character has come. That's what he has learned. Thor has learned the definition of happiness is not in power, riches, and might. The definition of happiness is in knowing who you are is a good man that other people look to and look for. Yeah. So be it. Like all Marvel Cinematic movies, this one has a tag at the end, although I shouldn't say all because the next film won't have a tag, but I'm getting ahead of myself. This tag involves Nick Fury making his appearance alongside Eric Selvig. Together they look at what turns out to be the Tesseract. However, comic reading folk were like, oh look, it's a cosmic cube. This scene shows Loki have some amount of control over Eric Selvig, as well as, you know, be alive. Yeah, it's a cute scene. It's funny. Samuel L. Jackson at the inception of Thor thought for a moment that he was going to be in the film because it was misreported and then was surprised and in interviews had to start saying, I'm not in this one. I thought so too. My bad. Ultimately was brought in for this one scene. As he described it, it's connective tissue for the Avengers. It's a good, nice seating for what's to come. It's at least more smooth and easier to fit in than the Hawkeye sequence. Mm. And that brings us to Cap, the first Avenger. I'm really excited to look at Cap. I don't remember thinking it's the best movie, but I do remember it carrying the characters well. I'm looking forward to seeing Peggy Carter. I'm looking forward to Tommy Lee Jones' character, whose name escapes my mind, other than grumpy old dude who helps Cap become a good soldier. I love seeing Dr. Erskine And, you know, I just, I really hate the Red Skull. I hate him so much. He literally represents Nazism, so I really enjoy watching him die and getting his ass kicked and all that good shit. Kevo, what do you remember about Cap? Well, Captain America was one of the few Avengers that I was familiar with before the Marvel Cinematic Universe started happening. You know, everyone's aware of the Incredible Hulk. Everyone knows Spider-Man. I had seen the 1990 Captain America film starring J.D. Salinger's son, Pretty Camp, obviously, for the 1990s, but I at least had seen that superhero portrayed on film before, so I was aware of the icon. By this point, I was definitely into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and excited for the next installments. Uh, I love World War II era films, so this was uh, a nice blend between that and superhero stuff to be excited about. I wasn't really sure what exactly to expect. We all knew Chris Evans as the Human Torch or the guy from Not Another Teen Movie. It was interesting, exciting. Uh, We were all very nervous from what I remember, and... I definitely think he did a great job and has continued to do a great job. So I'm excited to revisit his roots as Captain America before we get to Avengers Endgame. And get to Avengers Endgame we will. But first, next up, we're going to have Captain America, the first Avenger. Kevo, until that episode drops, where can everybody find you? Uh, Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. 
You can also check out our amazing comic book, Kid Riot, as well as its sister title, Capes and Boots, over at KidRiotComics.com. Feel free to check out other shows here on the Cage Club Network, like Now and Again, where I review the Now That's What I Call Musics with my best friend Chris, or X's for Podcast, where Kevo, our boyfriend Jonah, and our friend Kyle and I take an examination at the X-Men comic book franchise, as well as finding me on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. So until next time, everybody, we will catch you in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yo. I own it, Lord Hunter! Cut you out!